It's great to have you here, and thanks for coming. I always have this promise around this time of the year that that if you come to church on a sun, on this Sunday, I'll give you an extra hour of sleep. So you should all be rested and awake and alert as we continue this series in the book of Ezra. As we're talking about rebuilding our heart to the heart of God. And that's exactly where we were last week as we talked about over 40,000 exiles coming out of Babylon, some 900 miles away, going back to the land that God had uh, worked and built his nation that they had turned away from him and walked away and therefore he scattered them all around the Babylonian empire. I want to talk to you today about the things that are happening around you that affect your heart. I want to talk to you about sway and your heart. Next week, we're going to be talking about the things within you that build a resistance to the heart of God. But this is something to deal with the things around you. What's going on around you that are interacting with the desires of your heart and affect you and sway you away from God. Last week, we talked about uh, when they rediscovered this temple and actually the foundation for it, and they cleared off the foundation and they built the altar and they started worshiping God again. There was a great roar of the crowd in Jerusalem. In chapter three of Ezra, it seems like great success was happening. It seems like nothing better could be happening. But in chapter four, there's a major shift away from the crowd into the critics of what was happening. And I invite you to turn there with me in Ezra chapter four. We get a picture of what was happening amidst the celebration of worship. Read it with me. It says, now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that they, the returned exiles were beginning, uh, were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of father's houses and said to them, let us build with you for we worship your God as you do. And we've been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esaradan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's houses in Israel said to them, you have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God. But we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded to us. Now, looking from the outside, I think it's easy to make a quick judgment. Why wouldn't they let the other people in the surrounding area help them build this house? Uh, they may not totally understand everything about their God, but why would they be so kind of exclusive? Why would they be more isolationist? Why would they separate themselves from the people around them to build this house? And it's easy when you don't know the customs of the land. It's easy, separated by thousands of years of history, for us to make that judgment and to judge too harshly. But before we do that, let's just ask the question, who were these people who wanted to help? And what did they believe about God? And to find that answer, we've got to look at Second Kings 17. See, in 722 BC, the northern tribes, there were 10 of them out of the 12, were carted off by Assyria. And the king of Syria at that time didn't keep their culture intact. He actually dispersed them. He scattered them all around his kingdom and he obliterated their culture. He, uh, he obliterated all family ties and just 
sold them into slavery and moved them all around the culture. Their, their, their laws, their principles, the way they worshipped, all gone and scattered all around the world. And he took other people from which he defeated and he transplanted them into where those ten tribes were in northern Israel. Fascinating. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, Ghost in the Darkness. It's a story that tells that in 1898 of the East African Railway was building a railroad. And as they came to the Savo River in Kenya, there were lions attacking the people who were building the, the bridge. And these two lions were just like possessed and they killed over 130 workers. And... And so they, the workers cried out to the British government, save us, give someone help. And that movie tells the whole story of it. It's a fascinating movie about how lions are hunted. It's fascinating that in 2 Kings 17, this very thing happened where these 10 tribes used to be. And they cried out to the king and said, the God of this land must hate us. Help us do something. So he actually found people who used to live there. And he brought them back and he said, teach the people who are living there how to worship your God so these lions don't attack them anymore. And so these people came back. God's a God's a God of grace. He does this. He brought them back into the land. He taught them and, and they taught them how to worship their God. But the people around them actually taught them how to worship their gods. And instead of worshiping the one and only God, they worshiped all the gods together. This is the founding of what we're now, what are now known as the Samaritan people. Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Jews were always suspicious of this group because they didn't just worship the one God. They worshiped all the other gods of which they included their one God. And so it's likely that they didn't, and I mean, it's shown in this passage, they didn't want them working there. But it was also their practices of what they did. I saw one of their practices that they did when I was traveling to Israel a few years back. I came to this uh, great city of Megiddo, which is um, uh, in the, that northern region. And it's one of the most ancient cities in the world. There's literally 28 civilizations, layers of civilizations in the city. When a town was ransacked and defeated, they would just build on top of it. They wouldn't dig down and get down to the foundation like we would today. They would just build on top of it. So you can go back and unlayer it and kind of peel the onion of civilizations. And in Megiddo, it was fascinating. I, I walked up on, onto this and you could literally walk down 28 layers of civilization. One of the great things on top of this hill is you can overlook and see the plain of Megiddo, which is known for the Battle of Armageddon, where that might happen. And you can see that. And as I was looking at the plain of Megiddo, I looked over to the left and I saw this circular rock formation. It had stairs going up to it. And I wondered, what in the world is that? So I asked our guide, what is that? And he said, that is actually an altar. And as they were unearthing this area around that altar and in that altar, they just found hundreds, if not thousands of bones from infants. That's where people sacrifice children to their gods. And it says in 2 Kings 17 that that's exactly what Israel was doing with the people. They were sacrificing their children on that altar. Abomination to the Lord. So it's no wonder now, before we judge too quickly in 2015, I think we'd separate from those types of practices also. And so uh, 
as these people separated from the people around them and the sway around them, the people got angry that they couldn't be included. And whenever you tell someone no, that's the start of a fight. And that's exactly what happened. And look with me in verse 4. It says, Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. This really shows us quite, quite simply what the effect of sway is on our lives. As the people around them started resisting the work that they were doing and the call that God had for them, I observed four things that happened in their lives. Number one, fear. That's the big one, right? They discouraged them so that they were afraid to build. What if they could hurt us? They could kill us. So fear was a dominant force of sway. We may not fear today of of getting killed, but we certainly fear being embarrassed in public. We fear what people think of us. I mean, the fear of what people will think of us drives us to only put positive things on Facebook. You know, we don't we don't share. My son just failed geometry. We don't share that post. We don't do that. We don't go. My daughter just got dumped by her prom date one day after post. We don't do that. Because we only want the positive. We want people to think good of us. Fear moves us. and sways us. Secondly, there's discouragement. It says the people of the land discouraged them so that they were afraid. And, and, And discouragement does that. When you're set towards something and you're discouraged and, and you, you realize you might not be able to make a difference. That the force against you is more powerful than yours. So you feel helpless. There's also distraction. These people didn't just stop with the work and, and went and did nothing. In the book of Haggai, who's one of the prophets at this time, actually tells us that instead of building the house of the Lord, they just redirected their interests and their, through their distraction, they started building their own homes. Sound familiar? Home and garden channel in Jerusalem started popping up. A lot of likes to those new Jewish homes. But the house of the Lord was in waste. It was in ruins. And then they moved to despair. No hope. Nothing we can do. Our government shut us down, so there's nothing we can do. I guess God just wants us on the sidelines. Now, this account in Ezra chapter 4 actually expands to so generations of resistance in the area from the rebuilding of the temple to the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem. But then it draws back at the latter part of chapter 4 and look at the ultimate effect of people's resistance, of sway in their lives. Look at verse 24. It says this, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Sway took the people and the work of God and it stalled them. Fearful, discouraged, distracted and in despair. And that's the ultimate effect in us. The ultimate effect on sway in our lives is that God's work is stalled and God's mission is neutralized in us. I see sway at FBC. I see sway in my own life. 
So he moves us to, to stay on the sidelines, fearful of what people will think, fearful of being a fanatic, fearful of, you know, just being one of those religious freaks and, and, and trusts other people to do what really we're called to be in the game to do. Sway moves us to keep up with others, always comparing our lives with others, always discontent with what we've already been given, always striving for the next fix, whether it's the next gadget, whether it's the next uh, moment of pleasure or happiness, all at the expense of following what God has for us right now. Do you realize Sway has more power than we think? Especially when it messes with an internal insecurity, which we'll talk about next week. There's actually a book on Sway. It was written by Ori and Ram Brofman, and it begins with a story. The story of two 747s headed for these little, little uh, uh, islands uh, right off of Morocco, the Canary Islands. And they're headed to a small airport where most of them are headed on vacation. It's called the Grand Canaria Airport. And it happened way back on Sunday of March 27th, 1977. One was a 747, a KLM flying from Amsterdam. One was a Pan American airline flying originally from Los Angeles, but they stopped in New York to pick up just a few people. While they were headed towards the, te- the uh, Grand Canaria airport, there was a terrorist attack in the airport flower shop of this airport. And all the flights were diverted because the airport shut down. And they were diverted to this small, even a smaller runway or or airport in Tenerife, which was also in the Canary Islands. And this airport in Tenerife was just not equipped to handle all the the traffic. They had two 747s and three other larger uh, jets that came in jam-packed with people. And so this small terminal couldn't even handle 200 people, let alone the 600 that were on the two 747s. The moment he landed the KLM 747, Captain Van Zanten was pressed for time. He had this internal clock that was ticking inside of him because the company had a policy. He could only fly and be on duty for a certain amount of hours before they'd have to bring in a new crew to replace him. And so here he is landing in this small dinky airport in the middle of the Canary Islands. He had all these people. He was frustrated. He was short fused. He was irritable. He couldn't feed them. The terminal didn't have the supplies. He couldn't put them up in a hotel for the night because the ho- even the, the, the small island couldn't accommodate all the people he had on board. So he started thinking and reverse engineering the latest time he had to take off. And he realized that would be 6.30 p.m. It was 3.30. After a few hours of sitting and cooling in seals, the airport in Gran Canaria reopened. But Van Zanten made a kind of a, a, a quick decision to get refueled, a process that takes 35 minutes to do so. And where his jet was positioned as a 747, it was blocking all other traffic from going out. So everyone was waiting on him. Four other jets, one a 747, limited, nervous, impatient. He finally fills up and he starts heading down the runway. Now, the airport runway, there was only one and he had to go all the way on it and turn around, do a 180 and then take off because that was the only place he could turn around. 
And as he was headed out on that runway, fog started moving in. It was the worst case scenario. Fog was coming in and he saw even beyond the distance a large cloud bank coming in. And his internal clock was getting more pressurized. He gets to the end of the runway, does the 180. What he didn't realize in the fog, the Pan American jet is also on the same runway headed right towards him. He says, we're going. His co-pilot says, we've, rec- we've not received clearance. He said, we're going. And he throttles his jets and he moves down. About a quarter of the way down the runway, he's not reached, you know, pull-up speed. So he looks and all of a sudden, both pilots saw it at the same time. They're headed towards each other. And he pulls up and he scrapes the back of the 747 on the ground as he's ascending. And he's just getting off the ground and crash. He smashes in to the Pan American jet. And and everyone on his plane perishes. Everyone except 61 on the KLM flight perishes. 583 casualties. It to this day is the worst airline disaster in history in one airport. Captain Van Zanten was the picture-perfect pilot. He had just come back from six months of training. That's his picture right in the middle of an advertisement for KLM, which ironically says KLM from the people who made punctuality possible. He had just taught for six months safety instructors. He was discipling all the other pilots. He was he was headed for a great retirement. And what was it at the end of that runway that tempted him to put so many people at jeopardy and ultimately their death. It was sway. It was sway. And as they talked to everyone, they interviewed all the people who dealt with him and and talked with him and the radio operators to the control tower. They came down to, here it is. He feared losing the opportunity to get off the ground more than the safety of everyone on his plane. Before we judge him too harshly, and I know it's a harsh judgment on what he did, that same fear of missing out, of losing out of an opportunity is that alive and work in us. It's the same one that says, get it now. You'll never have a better day to buy this thing. Or it's going to upgrade and the new upgrade is so much better. That buy it now. Put the money up. Buy it now. Don't worry about tomorrow. Get it in your hands and It's the same rationale we use when we don't want to miss out of an opportunity. It can go from money. It can move to relationships. No one will love you anymore if you don't get into this relationship. You don't want to lose. He's got all these flaws, but just no one else is going to. It's that same fear of loss that sways us away from God's best for us. And that was a live work. In all the exiles when they returned and they stopped working on the temple. God's been working with people swayed by a lot of things for a long time. And in Ezra, God raised up two prophets. One of them's Haggai. I know many of you are not naming your children that. Uh, And Zechariah which is not Zach, it's Zech, (laughs) Zechariah. And he, these two prophets... God used to call his people out of sway and back into the game. And I believe as I've looked at what these two prophets called the 
the passive exiles back into is very much what we need to be called back into, out of sway and into the game that God has for us. Let me draw them out. The first one has to do with the presence of God. And Zechariah encouraged them to respond to the presence of God in them. And I believe for you to address and confront sway in your life, you have to be willing to understand and you have to respond, not just know, but respond to God's presence with you. It's one of the greatest claims of scripture is that I'm with you wherever you go. When God calls you to be on mission, he is going to comfort you with his presence. Look at what Zechariah says. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord, I've returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Think about that. The people were exiles. It would be easier for them to say, boy, my family I left behind. Everyone we left behind in Babylon. That's where the world's happening. That's where the power is. Now I'm back in Jerusalem. Where's God? We're just kind of sitting here waiting for him. Does God only stir back in Babylon or is he here? And Zechariah says, I'm with you. I returned to Jerusalem with mercy. What? Because wherever you go, I will be with you. Do you realize that fear not is a phrase that's mentioned 365 times in the Bible? One for every day of our year. That's something we need to remember because it's something that we don't always practice the presence of God with us. But here's the deal I've learned is that whenever I felt that God was with me, whenever I responded to the reality that God is with me, guess what went away? Fear. Fear. You want to address fear in your life? Respond to the presence of God with you. Second, the prophets encourage them to remember the promise of God to them. And for us to overcome sway, we need to remember that God has promised us. That we need to be in the game with him. And he gives us promises if we do this. All the way back in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 29. As they were being carted off into Babylon, Jeremiah the prophet calls out to them. And he tells them of the Lord's heart for them. Look at Jeremiah 29.10. It says this. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. You count those 70 years from the original deportation of Jerusalem in which like Daniel was part of that going out to Babylon to when they returned, it was 70 years. If you want to calculate it another way in 586, when the temple was destroyed to when the temple was completed, 70 years. However you count it, God was true to his promise in 70 years. I'll bring you back. And when I bring you back and I'm with you, I will work to complete this this temple again. I will fulfill my promise to you, God is saying to them. And so God is kind of calling out to them, saying, look who I am. Look what I've promised you. Do you realize today Jesus has promises for us? In John chapter 14, Jesus said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, then I will come again and receive you unto myself so that where I am, there you will be also. 
In my house are many rooms. In other words, plenty of room. Live. Bank on that promise. And that's what the New Testament church did. They, they put their investment with their lives in things that were eternal. And they could easily turn from the sway of the culture around them. You can move from gadgets to the next possession to the next pleasurable experience to an eternity with God because of the promises that God has given us. And the other promise that Jesus gives us in in John 14 is the promise of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit would work in us. He would be that promise guaranteeing what is to come. My peace I give you, Jesus said. That's the promise. So if you're discouraged because of sway, remember, you have the encourager. You have the comforter within you. The third thing the the prophets reminded them to do is to refresh the mission of God for them. And for you to overcome sway, the mission of God needs to be front and center. I love what Haggai does. Haggai, and the way I know what he was all about, is it's kind of a play on in the English vernacular of Haggai's rebuild the temple, basically, is what he's saying. And Haggai came to them and he observed a few things. They were building houses instead of the house of God. And he opens up his book. He says, is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? And then he says, look at verse 7 of Haggai chapter 1. He says, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. What's their mission? The pleasure of God, the glory of God. What's your mission today? The pleasure of God, the glory of God in your life. It's easy to be distracted because there's a a million missions you could live for. There's a million little distractions you could move to from a a screen to the next little, you know, Next little diversion, uh, you can be focused on it like a Royals game in the eighth inning. (laughs) Or you could easily be distracted from it. What's your mission? What are you here to do? When you're distracted, when you're on the sidelines, it's usually because you've missed the mission. It's not refreshed. And much like a computer screen, we need to press that refresh screen It takes us out of the dead end and it moves us back into front and center. We need to do that with our lives. What's the mission of Fellowship Bible Church? Boy, I've got to keep that front and center. We're here to help people find and follow Jesus Christ. If you're looking, it's our prayer that you would find Jesus, that you would turn away from your way, from trying to trusting in him, from trying to be good enough to trusting in someone who's already done it for you, Jesus the one who lived, died, and rose again for you. And once you found him, we want you to follow him. Every week we come here. Why are we doing this? So that we can follow Jesus, not only in this room, but outside of this room. Are we going to be perfect in it? No, but he's perfect. So we follow someone is. We're all kind of hypocrites. Who isn't in this world? We all have values that are higher than we can perform. Therefore, we need the gospel We still need the gospel after we trust in Jesus to follow Jesus and to show him to 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 profess our need of him. It's time we get back to our mission. And I can even see in a church, there's a loads of distractions 
in leading a church. There's the distractions of, uh, I don't know, we've grown too big. I just, I don't feel like I used to at fellowship anymore. That's a sway. What are we here to do? What are we here? Personal comfort. Is that why we're here? It's so that I feel good in my seat watching someone perform. No, it's that you'd be engaged in the mission. That your life is lived for the pleasure and the glory of God. Helping people find, helping people follow Jesus. See, it's got to come down to that. Otherwise, there'll be all these other shadow missions that take over. We've got to realize that's why we're here. Keep it front and center. Refresh. Why did I bring you back, God said to them, to build the temple? Are we doing that? No. Get back in. Get back in. Refresh the mission of God for you. And finally, these prophets were called to renew the hope of God in them. You know, Jesus came to give us hope. For you to overcome sway, you've got to believe that greater is he that is in you than he that is in this world. You've got to put our hope back in Jesus. Jeremiah 29, 11 says this, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. One thing that sway does to hope is it makes it elusive. It makes it off there and almost unattainable. God is a God of hope and a future. It's for welfare, not for evil. And we need to always place our hope in him. There's a million different alternatives to hope. But Jesus lifts himself up as an anchor for our souls. Hope, hope. Sway was confronted in this group of exiles who came back to rebuild by by showing the presence of God, by by calling them back to the promises of God, by showing them and refreshing the mission of God for them and asking them to place their hope in God. So what was the result? Turn with me to Ezra six, because in verses 14 through 16, it shows us the result. It says this. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, son of Edu. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. That's 515 B.C. as we know it today. And the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites and the rest returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Move your eyes down to verse 19. It says on the 14th day of the first month, the returned exiles kept Passover. They celebrated God's deliverance. They also in in chapter uh, six, verse 22, it says they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days. Look at that with Joy. What comes back when you confront sway? Joy. What's elusive when you're controlled by sway? Joy. God is a God of a hope and future. He wants us to live with joy amidst the sway of this world. So many of us just like to get away from sway. Nope. The church is always called to confront sway. Two things will be said about your heart. Your heart will either be sidelined by sway or rebuilding by grace. 
The gospel is all about your heart being rebuilt around the person and the work of Jesus. And that's going to require each of us to say, the sway of this world's not going to hold my heart anymore. It's just not going to do it. Maybe it's today when you realize the effect of sway on you. Fear, discouragement, distraction, despair. And maybe today's the best day because when we learn it's the best time to respond to him. Just like a prophet of old called people back to rebuilding, it's time for you to confront the sway in your lives so you can get back on mission with Jesus. I want to just ask you to bow with me in prayer as we commit our lives to the the movement of God and the work of God for us. Would you pray with me? Lord, today, we might feel sway even before we see it and can identify it in our lives. So when we feel alone, when we feel threatened, when we feel hopeless, would we, just like those of ancient times who rebuilt your work, recognize your presence with us? We're never alone. We're never isolated. You will never leave us nor forget about us. We claim that. And we live with your presence in us. May we claim your promises to us that you will return and that you will give eternity for those who believe in you. Would would you move us to a greater promise of joy, of peace, of finding rest for our souls that's in Jesus? Would you help us engage a mission amongst all the other shadow missions in this world? May we have a crystal clear picture of your mission for us and may we live in your hope. The hope of Jesus within us. Heavenly Father, we celebrate you right now. And we ask for you to put us back in the game. We confess that we have been sidelined by sway. Would you help us rebuild by your grace? It's in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.